everyone. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. Happy to have you this evening, this Wednesday evening. We're excited to have Dr. Phil Klotz back on with us as we are, yeah, you guessed it, talking about hurricanes. It is almost that time of the year again, and Phil has just released his uh, first outlook for the uh, 2023 hurricane season, and we're going to dive into that and kind of figure out if we can uh, pinpoint what might be happening this year in the tropics. So, uh, Phil, we appreciate you joining us. I know it's it's been a busy schedule for you. You've had several conferences you've been speaking at over the last several weeks. So what's it like leading into hurricane season for Dr. Phil Klotzbeck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So today, this is my, uh, I was in two hour long presentations over Zoom <laughs> earlier today. So um, still learning a little bit on fumes, but hanging in there. Um, yeah, so typically... The March, April, May timeframe is pretty busy because there's a lot of like hurricane preparedness conferences. So either with emergency managers or with broadcast meteorologists. So this time of year, I do a lot of presentations, both virtual and uh, now that COVID is uh, hopefully mostly in the rearview mirror, doing more and more in person as well. Um, so it's been um, it's been it's been a busy time. I have one more um, in person present in person conference slash presentation next week, and then that's it. I have for a while in terms of in person stuff. So. Um, then the schedule gets a little calmer. It's, uh, I guess, to put it in sports term, it's like building up to the Super Bowl. You know, you've got to go through all the, the meetings and stuff and and, and the season's uh, about to hit. So uh, let's dive into that. Let's talk about what's uh, 23, 2023 looking like for uh, the Atlantic Basin. Yeah, so we put out our first forecast a couple of weeks ago. And with that forecast, we called for a slightly below normal hurricane season with 13 named storms. Those are systems named by the National Hurricane Center. Uh, those are winds of 100, uh, 39 miles per hour or greater. Um, an average season has 14, so a little bit below normal. Um, seven hurricanes is the average. We're forecasting six, so a little bit below normal for hurricanes. And three is the average for major hurricanes. We're forecasting two. So two major hurricanes are category three, four, and five on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale, winds of 111 miles per hour or greater. And while they only make up about a quarter of the storms that form in any year, they do about 80 to 85% of the damage. Um, and for example, last year, the two major hurricanes that we had in 2022 were Fiona and Ian, which were by far the um, most damaging and devastating storms of the season. So average season is 14, seven, and three. We're forecasting 13, six, and two. So just a little bit below the long-term average. Yeah, and, and as you know, I mean, and those who are listening and, and watching tonight, it's been a very active period of hurricane season. So I guess when we're at normal or slightly below, um, maybe we can be a little happy about that. But we always say it only takes one storm and and, and it can do, do the damage. So um, I know we've been uh, hearing the word El Nino a lot. Uh, what is uh, El Nino, La Nina? How is that going to play into our our hurricane uh, season. Yeah, so, you know, we've had La Nina. We had La Nina for 2020, 2021, and 2022. So we had three consecutive years with La Nina. Obviously, 2020 was ridiculously busy. 2021 was above normal. 2022 actually classified as a normal season, the first not above normal season since all the way back in 2015. Um, so if you think it's been busy, it really has. Um, but we've quickly pivoted away from La Nina. We currently have neutral conditions, which means neither El Nino nor La Nina. Um, and the potential is um, that we are likely to head over to El Nino for the summer and fall. El Nino is warmer than normal waters in the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. 
And typically when you get an El Nino, that basically alters the atmospheric circulation in such a way that you get stronger winds blowing out of the west, high up in the atmosphere, 25, 30,000 feet in the Atlantic that tend to tear apart hurricanes, basically shear them apart um, so they're less likely to become name, um, tropical storms and especially hurricanes. So that's the primary reason why we're going a bit below normal is because overall uh, we do think El Nino is quite likely and potentially going to be a pretty strong event. Most of the uh, numerical models are calling for, you know, potentially even like one of the strongest El Nino events on record. But El Nino is sort of the key here. If uh, if that onset of El Nino conditions takes longer than we expect, then uh, then we run the risk of the numbers being a little higher than forecast. Yeah, that's correct. Because um, basically some of the models are forecasting effectively the strongest El Nino on record, but also the warmest Atlantic on record. And right now the Atlantic is um, the Eastern and Central Atlantic, which is the area we kind of monitor during the spring, because that area basically correlates better with activity during the summer, um, is the warmest on record. So, you know, it's, it's good. It's kind of two big forces, kind of, uh, what is it? The, uh, the, um, the, um, um, the immovable force and the, whatever that one was back the in the irresistible day, force like, and the immovable object. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. So basically that's kind of what we've got going on is we have, a very, very warm Atlantic, but also the potential for a really strong El Nino. So it's kind of question as to exactly how that's going to play out. I mean, obviously, if it's if that forecast were to verify, we end up with the strongest El Nino and the warmest Atlantic. You know, obviously that wouldn't have happened before because if it's breaking records in both places, some modeling that has happened where they've looked at that is indicates that that kind of falls off to near normal, which is one of the reasons why our forecast is kind of near near the long term average, just just a scooch below. But obviously, if like Frank mentioned, you know, if if the El Nino doesn't come on very strong or takes longer and the Atlantic remains as warm, then you can certainly have an extremely busy season. Alternatively, if the Atlantic doesn't warm up as fast um, and we get a really strong El Nino, then you could end up with a really uh, very quiet hurricane season. So that's kind of what we're where we're at right now is there's there's these two big factors. And, you know, it's been a few weeks since we put out the forecast, but right now I wouldn't see any I don't see any reason to change things much because if anything, El Nino looks more certain, but the Atlantic has also warmed faster than normal. So it's, it's really getting warm fast. For example, the region that I monitor, which is the Eastern and Central Tropical and Subtropical Atlantic, 30-day averages ending in late April are what we normally get at the end of May. So we're running about a month ahead of schedule in terms of water temperatures. So that's not great. Um, so that's kind of where, where we're at right now. The Atlantic water temperatures just go to show that uh, El Nino isn't the only thing to look at. So uh, what other things do you look at when you make your forecast other than uh, El Nino and the Atlantic water temperatures? Yeah, so we use um, a whole pile of different um, models um, to look at. So we look at both um, statistically what, so for the April forecast, we look at statistically what basically correlates in January, February, March. So effectively, water temperatures in the Eastern and Central Atlantic. We also look at upper level winds um, over Africa when those are stronger out of the West. Um, that in, in the subtropics, that tends to correlate with a busier hurricane season. You tend to get less of uh, what's known as um, basically wave breaking during the peak of the season, which is basically more kind of like frontal intrusions into the tropics that can really shear storms apart. We saw a ton of that, for example, last August. Um, and so, you know, if we go back to like when CSU started doing these seasonal forecasts in the early 1980s, um, when, when Dr. Bill Gray started these forecasts, basically that's all you have was statistically, okay, what correlated up to that date of your forecast. But now we also have climate models 
um, that actually have some decent skill. And so we can look and see what are those models forecasting for the peak of the hurricane season. So we use a variety of different climate models. We use the European Center model, uh, the UK Met Office, one from Japan and then one from Italy. Um, and basically what we're looking at for them is the forecasts for August and September water temperatures in the Atlantic, as well as um, the tropical Pacific. So basically, for example, the European Center model from April was forecasting the warmest tropical Pacific and also the warmest Atlantic. Um, so that's, and when you when you put those two predictors in combination, it came out just slightly above normal, which is kind of what you would expect. So um, we look at a whole pile of other things as well. Um, another big factor for this year is, while El Nino looks pretty likely, we also still have what's known as a negative phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which effectively is cold water off of the west coast of California. And when you have cold water there, that tends to force higher pressures in that region. Um, and when you have higher pressure in the subtropics, that tends to force stronger trade winds blowing from east to west across the tropical Pacific, which basically puts a damper on any El Nino that's trying to develop because effectively, in the Pacific Ocean, tropical Pacific over by Indonesia is super warm in general, way warmer than, say, off the coast of Peru. So easterly winds basically kind of keep El Nino at bay, whereas if you get a lot of westerly winds, that basically transports that warm water from over by Indonesia eastward and helps kick off El Nino. So for the last few years, it was basically easterly winds, easterly winds, and we had that La Nina just seemed like it wouldn't go away. But that's actually flipped pretty quickly, and now there's a lot more uh, westerly winds popping up. So that PDO potentially could, you know, be something that maybe the models aren't keen in on as much as they should that might keep things from transitioning over quite as quickly. Um, but again, it certainly does look like we should get a fairly strong uh, low-level westerly wind episode across the tropical Pacific in a couple of weeks, which I think will really probably get us over to El Nino um, in the next several weeks. And uh, it's also important, I guess, to remember that your forecast uh, is only about the number of storms. It doesn't. Uh, it, it's, it says nothing about where the storms uh, will form and where they'll go. Yeah, that's correct. And one thing we actually are working on is trying to make our forecast a little more impact relevant. Um, in general, busier seasons have more landfalls. Um, so we always say it only takes one, but you know, if you could tell me that we're gonna have three hurricanes this year versus 12, the odds of a three hurricane season having a horrible hurricane, it's not zero, but it's a lot lower than if you'd say you had 12 hurricanes. Um, but what we're trying to do now is also forecast. Um, so accumulated cyclone energy is this kind of geeky metric that accounts for storm frequency, intensity, and duration. Um, and so right now we forecast that for the entire Atlantic, but we're working, we started this year actually forecasting that index just west of 60 degrees west. And the reason why that matters is because there's a whole lot of land west of 60 degrees west, whereas east of 60, it's mostly just open ocean. Um, and so if you can forecast that index, that actually correlates a lot higher with impacts, not just for the continental U.S., but also for the Caribbean, Central America, um, Mexico. And, and it's, it's important because while obviously the U.S. overall typically has the highest dollar amounts of damage, when you look at it as a percentage of like the GDP of a country, these other these some of these islands and other countries, you can have much more, much higher percentages of GDP than you would for the United States. Um, so that's something we are working on forecasting. So for this year, basically the ace west of 60 is a little lower because in El Nino years, it tends to favor recurving storms a little bit, but also um, you tend to get less storm activity in the Caribbean, which is a really high ace generation region because the Caribbean is, is, is just hot um, compared with most other places in the basin. It's just really, really warm. So if you 
El Nino really tends to really ramp up the shear in that region. So when you have um, an El Nino, you tend to not, that Caribbean tends to be a lot less likely for storms to really ramp up and that generate a lot of aces or tracking across. We've seen some early season storms. Um, as as cold fronts and things like that come to the coast, they kind of stall out. Um, do you think there's any possibility of that this year with, with what you're seeing? Maybe some early season storms or weaker tropical storms, something like that? Yeah, I mean, so just looking at the long range models, there's not much indication, at least in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but like you mentioned, we have seen, um, so last year was the first year we didn't have a pre-June 1st storm since I believe 20, Oh, I think it was 2015. Um, I believe that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, so last year we had one, but we still have one in early June. Um, and we actually wrote a paper on this. I was a co-author. I was the lead on this one, but we looked at the um, basically frequency of storms forming prior to June 1st. And that has increased. Um, some of it maybe just due to better observations. We have better satellites to help observe these storms, but so it is also just the Western Atlantic has gotten a lot warmer and just overall the thermodynamics. So basically the warm waters and just basically the intensity potential that's there now um, is just higher than it, than it was. And so there's we're starting to see more of these weak storms forming early in the season. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, oh, should we move the season start earlier? Um, but we haven't had a full blown hurricane in May since 1970. Um, so it, it, there's. There's kind of arguments both ways on that. Um, but the other hard part is by August 15th, if we say move the forecast, so there's been a discussion, should we move back to May 15th, which is when the Eastern North Pacific hurricane season starts. But by August 15th, in, on average, we've only had one hurricane. So it becomes kind of a, you know, we do all this messaging in April and May, and this is hurricane preparedness week and all this stuff, which is great. But then June 1st comes and we say, okay, start a hurricane season. And usually not much happens in June and July. You know, I mean, even to a year like 2004, which was nuts. We had no storms till the 1st of August. And then of course, all hell broke loose for two months. Um, so it, it'd be, it would become challenging if we were to move this season earlier. But I think there is some, at least, you know, evidence that we are seeing more of these early storms just because the thermodynamics in the Western Atlantic are more favorable. Uh, but at least from a um, looking at kind of the subseasonal stuff that's coming through in the next couple of weeks, that shouldn't, it, that doesn't look to enhance stuff, but who knows? I mean, certainly we still have several weeks, I guess four weeks from today will be the last day before the hurricane season. So four weeks from tomorrow will be the first day of hurricane season. So certainly something could pop up, but at least right now there's nothing looking too um, interesting in the Atlantic. Phil, one thing that uh, has really been getting a lot of attention, and I think rightfully so, is a lot of folks focus on that hurricane cone, but they don't really consider how far the impacts reach. Um, and, and that's something I think that maybe we're working on or the National Hurricane Center is working on behind the scenes. Uh, you think, I would think that you would agree that that's probably a good thing that we need to kind of broaden the horizon and not just primarily focus on the center of that cone, but kind of how far these impacts could actually reach. Yeah, and so, you know, um, I was at a conference last month, uh, the National Tropical Weather Conference, which is a lot of broadcast meteorologists, and there was a lot of discussion there. I don't know, half a dozen talks at least on the forecast code and how how to use it, how not to use it. Um, and I mean, it's, it's interesting because obviously hurricanes are really the only phenomenon that we track with a point. Um, like we don't track winter storms with a point. We don't say that, you know, there's a nor'easter 41 north, 72 west or something like that you know we we just track the overall impacts and we don't say the max winds with that nor'easter are 60 
you know, 60 knots or whatever, we just maybe we maybe talk about the pressure, uh, but we don't talk about the, the, the we just talk about like the impacts and the wind field and stuff. And so it is the. I mean, I think there's certainly challenges with the cone. There'd be some things I would like to do with it if I were in charge. Um, but, you know, it is key. And you mentioned on there that, you know, the impacts extend far away from the cone. And obviously the way the cone is constructed is it is that two thirds of the historical errors within the past five years will fall within that cone. So by definition, that cone basically expands with time. Um, so if you're looking say five days out, the cone is large and then two days out, the cone is a lot smaller. So people, it, a lot of people think, you know, oh, the, the storm's getting bigger with time. And that's just, no, it's the uncertainty of where the storm is going to track is getting bigger with time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think anything we can do more to emphasize the impacts that the storm is going to cause are a lot more um, helpful in terms of actually what's what's gonna be felt on the ground. Um, I mean, the Hurricane Center does put out storm surge watches and mornings, which I think are awesome. And they talk about, you know, the levels of storm surge and the levels of inundation. Um, that people are going to experience. Um, but I think the the it's hard because again, when we talk about hurricanes a lot as a point, um, but obviously the impacts are could be felt over a very, very large area. I and mean, obviously there's other storms where the impacts are felt over a very small area. You know, not every every storm is different, but the cone graphic looks the same for every storm. So I think that that is a challenge. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about it, but I don't think. I don't think there's anything planned for this hurricane season. I think the cone is going to be basically the same, just I think it's shrunk a tiny bit just given the last five years errors or the errors in, I guess, what, 2017 were slightly less than the errors in 2016. So the cone shrunk a tiny, tiny bit. But I don't think that anything as big is changing for, for this year on, on the cone itself. I know you guys focus totally on this hurricane season. Is there anything that you guys, I know you mentioned the 60 degree west, Anything else you guys are working on as maybe not for this particular hurricane season, but as we're going in the next couple of years, anything else you guys are working on to, to kind of get yeah, better yeah, at so or we'll, to forecast better? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're always working on. So basically this year we're tweaking all our statistical models, not probably going to be massive changes, but we are tweaking them. We're using some of the higher resolution reanalysis products that are, that are now available. Uh, we're also incorporating more dynamical models as they come online and show better skill. Um, and that's one of the cool things that we have now is that with all these different numerical model guidance products, these climate model forecasts, also they're, they're obviously tested on historical, um, basically historical seasons. So we can get an idea of their track record. Um, so we can see you know, how well does this model work at forecasting, say El Nino, and we'll have at least 25, 30 years of, of historical data that kind of Basically, you know, and no past performance has no guarantee of future results, but when you're using the dynamical model, it is pretty much because, you know, the equations that dictate the atmosphere ocean aren't changing. Um, so that's that's something else that we're working on. We're also working on, instead of just doing ace-west of 60 degrees west, we're actually starting to do, we're looking at forecasting landfalling ace. So um, basically the amount of wind energy that is expended within, say, 50 miles of any land mass west of 60. Um, and so the reason why that's important is because if you have a fast moving hurricane that brings nasty winds, but it goes through in a few hours, it's going to cause damage, but it's a lot, quote unquote, better than a storm like Dorian in 2019, which is kind of like the cataclysmic example of a category five hurricane that stalls. Um, that's basically the worst case scenario. So that's what one of the indices that we're actually going to be working on forecasting um, for potentially even by the time we get to say the July or August updates for the 2023 um, hurricane season. And then other than that, we're also 
working a lot with our um, advocating using pressure to categorize hurricanes instead of wind. We're doing a lot of work with that. Um, and we're looking currently looking at how pressure correlates better. We've shown that it correlates better with damage, correlates better with fatalities than does wind or integrated kinetic energy, which has been another metric that's been proposed. And now we're showing, we're working on it uh, with storm surge, which is what you would expect because, um, you know, the strength of the intensity of the storm is an important driver of storm surge, but also the size of the storm. Larger storms have more surge. So pressure, lower pressures for the same winds basically indicate on general larger storms. So it does correlate better uh, with the storm surge as well. So we're working on both doing that from some modeling work um, that colleagues are working on as well as from observational work. So um, that's kind of what I'm working on uh, right now. <laughs> That, that that's great. I love that last point, you know, because there's always been that that focus point on the wind, but not much on the storm surge and and the pressure, I think, kind of wraps everything together and kind of really gives a real true view of what that hurricane actually is like. It's uh, it's time to come up with something better than the Saffir Simpson scale. It was it was good when it was instituted, but uh, we've we've seen those the flaws in that approach. Uh, yeah, a lot over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And I think and, and to me, it really is. It's 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 I grew up in Massachusetts, but really basically anywhere from Georgia north. Um, a category one by wind in Texas is not usually very different from a category one into North Carolina, uh, because typically, you know, you may have a, set, a hurricane has max winds of 75, 80 knots. But in the Carolinas, it's got a pressure of 960. It's a mod, it's a huge thing. And you're going to have a lot more surge impacts. Base, but by using the scale, it makes it sound like they're the same as these tight little 65, 70 knot hurricanes that make landfall at 990 that are just small. And they're going to cause some wind damage, but they're not going to probably be a, a big surge problem that you'll see up into the Carolinas. Um, and a lot of that's due to just storms hitting Texas. I mean, they can form for anywhere, but often you can get storms that form in the Gulf going to Texas and they're small and have only been around for a couple of days. But storms hitting North Carolina, South Carolina often have been around for a while. And typically with time, storms grow. So the storm by the time they hit the Carolinas are these big sprawly things that may not have super high winds associated with them, but they're huge. And so they have a lot more, just a large air, a large rain footprint, a large wind footprint and have a heck of a lot of storm surge. So um, that's why we like pressure because that kind of, that would kind of help make kind of balance um, the, the threats overall from different areas. So that's that's what we're pushing right now. So we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited about that. I think, like, like I think Frank said, I think it's time to revisit that. So, uh, you mentioned earlier, when, when's the next update for you from you all at, at CSU? And I believe you guys have two more updates. Is that correct? You'll do two more throughout the year. Yeah. Yes. So our next update is June the first. Um, let me hang on one second. Let me pull up the next two updates after that. Um, let's see. Our update after that is July the sixth, and then a final update on the third of August. And while Hurricane season obviously officially starts June 1st. Even by the time you get to the 3rd of August, you've still got about 95% of your major hurricane activity left to go. And I can't tell you how many times the people email me and have reporters, even meteorologists say, oh, it's a dud of a season. It's August 5th and we haven't had much. And obviously, you know, the season really doesn't ramp up until about August 20th. That's when Dr. Bill Gray, who founded the forecast, used to ring an actual bell every year, August 20th, signaling the, the active part of the hurricane season. So um, we still have ways to go before then. But yeah, the hurricane season starts in less than a month. Well, I think you touched on that perfectly. You know, this week has been National Hurricane Awareness Week, and we're doing it in May. And honestly, you know, in a typical season, we don't really look 
at things until we get into late July into August and the peak of the season. So, yeah, it, it, sometimes I, I wonder if we could push our awareness back just a little bit more just to keep it fresh in people's minds. I think uh, when you talk about it, May, by the time July 15th rolls around, people tend to not remember all of that stuff. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, unlike except I know it's all hurricanes are always on our minds, but a lot of other people right. they got other things to worry about that aren't going to be thinking hurricanes every day. That's right. That's right. Well, well, Dr. Phil, uh, we appreciate you being with us uh, again. Um, you're so generous with your time and always visiting us every year at the Carolina Weather Group and giving us uh, the latest on what you think. So we appreciate that uh, for our new followers or listeners. If uh, they're not already following you on social media, how can they do that? Yeah, so my my uh, handle is at Phil Klotzbach. Um, so I when I signed up for Twitter, it was I wasn't thinking I'd be doing a ton on Twitter. It was <laughs> I actually had a complaint with United Airlines, and so I signed up for Twitter to ask them something. Um, but since then, I've it's kind of ballooned. So I, I do quite a bit of stuff on Twitter. I don't have the blue check mark anymore. Uh, Elon took it away from me, but um, I still hope I'm providing still uh, reliable content. Um, so <laughs> definitely check out. I post. Um, Pretty much it's all it's all well it's it's either hurricanes or it's outdoor pictures. That's that that's it. No political that's, content from me. I steer clear of all that stuff. That's the best of both worlds. Hurricane and then outdoor content. That's right. Dr. Dre used to your best thinking about hurricanes done at 14,000 feet. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, your visit every year. And thank you all who are watching and listening to us here at the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you back here real soon.